A huge housing project has been approved in the Agriculture Reserve in Western Palm Beach County. And environmentalists are sounding the alarm about what's at stake with encroaching development. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. Agriculture is the number two slice of the economy in Florida, coming only after tourism. But what does it mean when farmland is being lost to pressures to build, build, build? And how is the affordable housing crisis affecting that? Also on the South Florida Roundup, a city of Miami planned to move homeless residents to a camp on Virginia Key. And the Miami Dolphins are facing a lot of uncertainty after owner Stephen Ross was suspended by the NFL. And the team loses two draft picks over the next two years. All of that and more on the South Florida Roundup, made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. On July 28th, the Palm Beach County Commission voted 5-1 to to approve plans for an affordable housing complex in the Agricultural Reserve. The project includes 357 market-rate apartments and 119 workforce housing units, which would be income-restricted. Giving the thumbs up to the proposal brings up pressing questions that are facing South Florida as a region, especially as the cost of housing has skyrocketed. How far west should we build? The region has been losing farmland to development, and environmentalists are sounding the alarm about what it means for the future. Joining us to discuss this topic is Heidi Mahaffey, an attorney with Sierra Club and a thousand friends of Florida. And also joining us is Kara Kapp, who's an appointed member of the Palm Beach County Planning Commission and the Senior Everglades Programming Manager at the National Parks Conservation Association. And also joining us is Palm Beach County Vice Mayor Greg Weiss. Um, everyone, thanks for joining. Thank you Thank for having you. us. So Vice Mayor, let's let's start with you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the commission was looking at with this vote and what the thinking behind approving this project was? Certainly. Thank you very much. Um, you know, uh, reports and, and studies have shown that there is a crisis level shortage of affordable housing in Palm Beach County. It's a mixed blessing. I mean, people want to live here, but the reports are showing that we're short about 100,000 units, affordable units in Palm Beach County. Uh, as the board looked at the area, there's 20,000 acres out in the Ag Reserve. It's the only part of our community uh, that had zero workforce housing requirement and also lacked any multifamily unit development. So the board embarked on, on looking at this and the there was a project that came through uh, the Reserve at Atlantic that you described, and the board felt that because of its proximity to uh, work center, uh, the plan for the affordable housing units, and also I did not mention, there's also a, uh, an institutional use going in there, a daycare center for 120 children. So that this was gonna provide a place for workers that, uh, live can live out in the ag uh, reserve area and support the families that live out there the businesses that are out there the hospitals that are out there the schools that are out there the parks that are out there all those folks employ people and we needed uh, a better way of creating housing for them 
And Heidi, you have fought these plans to put all these units of housing on this farmland in Palm Beach County. Um, what is it about this plan that alarmed you? Well, thank you. Um, you know, along with Robert and Hart's LPA, we've been representing 1,000 Friends of Florida and the Sierra Club Loxahatchee Group for years and have been instrumental in creating what the Ag Reserve is today. And to answer your question, it's important to take a little step back and look at what environmental and land use law in regards to the agricultural reserve really means. The law sees a comprehensive plan as a constitution for future development, which means that it has very specific land use regulations, rights and obligations and restrictions. And the agricultural reserve is a uniquely carved out area in Palm Beach County that requires that there be low density residential, low density commercial to enhance agricultural preservation, environmental and water resources, and open space that will serve the needs of the residents and the farm workers that live there. So what we've been seeing, and especially with Reserve at Atlantic, which has come before the commission repeatedly, and this is the first time that it's actually gotten an approval, and Kara Cap can speak on this, but it did receive a unanimous recommendation of denial from the planning commission. What our major concern is, is that this proposal is coming into the Ag Reserve, a low density regulation for development and requesting density that is similar to the suburban and, and, and urban tiers. Um, this particular piece of property is a little bit less than 40 acres and the approval is for eight acre for eight units per acre. When under the current land development regulation, they would only be allowed to develop seven homes on that property. And and we do. Um, sorry, go ahead. Just to go back to the to the to the vice mayor. Um, one of the the issues that has been brought up is that this this land in the preserve is partly meant to be kept green because out of other things, um, when rain falls on that, it will recharge the aquifer and the more development that happens in, in zones like that, the less the aquifer is going to be built, which could have further um, environmental ripple effects down the line. But like you mentioned, there's also this very real affordable housing crisis that has befallen all of South Florida. So how, how do you balance those two things? Because they're, they're, they're both two very important and pressing problems we're facing. So, and, and good question. And we applied the same rules to this development as we apply to any residential development in the Ag Reserve, meaning uh, based on its location, that only 40% of the land is available uh, to be part of the development. The other 60% must be set aside in a preserve. So uh, we've applied the same rules. And I think it's also really important to add that when the Ag Reserve was originally conceived, it there was an there was a an, there it was known that or expected there was going to be different types of housing. All that's been developed out there so far has been single family housing, and in fact, early on there was an entitlement given for multifamily housing that was never utilized. But the the original plans for the Ag Reserve included uh, a. 14,000 residential units. And as of today, only 6,000 have been built. And we continue to see that 58% of the land out there 
is under preservation. So the goals of the Ag Reserve are being accomplished, but yet we're making changes. And as Heidi said, you know, there is a constitution, but there's also amendments that we make to the constitution based on the reality of what's happening on the ground at the time. And I think our board has been very uh, careful and considerate on how we make these changes. And I, I, I just want to add a couple things for our, our listeners, a few factoids about partly about why we're talking about this. Um, agriculture employs about 200,000 people in Palm Beach County. And Palm Beach County alone is one of the top counties in the nation when it comes to supplying products like vegetables, potatoes, melons, hay. And the loss of farmland in Palm Beach County has been going on for years, as it has been in, in many other parts of, of Florida. Um, so that's kind of why one of the reasons why we're talking about this. Um, Kara, I, I want to bring you in. Uh, we haven't heard from you yet. And I want to ask you about this as a regional issue, because we've also seen a lot of similar talks and battles playing out in South Miami-Dade County with the encroachment of development into agricultural lands and the potential um, you know, impacts of that over the long term. So can, can you share a little bit about how those tensions are playing out in South Dade? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the question. Um, definitely development threats are nothing new in Palm Beach, in Miami, throughout South Florida. Um, there's an ongoing application right now for a large South Dade logistics center that would impact two national parks, um, Everglades National Park and Biscayne National Park in Miami. Um, and from our perspective at National Parks Conservation Association, we're concerned not only about the direct impact of habitat loss, but also the related impacts like loss of water recharge capacity when we develop open space, um, increased transportation density in the area, increased pollution. So sprawl encroaching on our remaining natural areas is a huge threat. And it's happening at a time when both the state of Florida and the federal government are making a huge investment to restore the Everglades. The Biden administration has invested more than a billion dollars in the Everglades this year alone. And we're doing that to improve water quality throughout the entire region. So when we're seeing at the same time, local governments developing away our remaining natural habitat and water recharge areas, it feels like a total misalignment of the taxpayer investing we're making in Everglades restoration. And Vice Mayor Weiss, I want to ask you a, a question kind of following up on that. Um, in in, in, in Miami-Dade County, the county is, is working to potentially put the brakes on these kind of pressures on agricultural lands. And one of the ways they're doing that is they're looking at basically taking over zoning rights for huge areas along the major transit corridors, more on the coastal ridge, which is already highly developed, and then potentially changing the zoning to make housing denser in the areas that are already served by services and whatnot and and to, to prevent that that sprawl westward is is palm beach county looking at any kind of zoning changes in the already developed areas to you know offset some of that pressure on this agricultural land so understand that miami dade's government is slightly different than ours so right. we have municipalities that uh, set their own zoning uh, regulations but however i can speak to the areas uh, that are in unincorporated Palm Beach County that are in our urban and uh, suburban tiers. And those are uh, being looked at and, and we are, have directed staff uh, to uh, review uh, density and, and where there is transit and transit available. Is there an opportunity uh, 
or increase density and take and take advantage of the these transit corridors uh, to efficiently move people. I do want to mention that there are over 440,000 acres in agricultural production in Palm Beach County. Uh, most of that is is in the EAA, the Everglades Agricultural Area. The Ag Reserve is in as it relates to agriculture is approximately 10,000 acres of agricultural production. So I can expect you can expect that we will continue to be a very large agricultural uh, producing area, not only for the state of Florida, but for the entire United States going forward. I'm Danny Rivero, and you're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. And we're talking about the encroachment of development into South Florida's farmlands and the kind of pressures that are facing farmers. We're joined by Palm Beach County Vice Mayor Greg Weiss. Heidi Mahaffey, who is an attorney with Sierra Club and a thousand friends of Florida, and Kara Cap, an appointed member of the Palm Beach County Planning Commission. Um, what do you think about the loss of farmland in South Florida? You can call us at 800 743 WLRN. That's 800 743 9576. And you can also tweet us at WLRN. Heidi, I want to come back to you because the the Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge is very close to the border of this agricultural reserve in Palm Beach County that's increasingly being developed. Um, what could this increased development potentially mean for the wildlife refuge in the long run? Thank you for that question. So the Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge abuts the agricultural reserve which makes this ag reserve preservation so important because of the environmentally sensitive nature of where it is. Um, the Wildlife Refuge employs hundreds of individuals in Palm Beach County and is one of the only remaining most northern parts of the Everglades system. So maintaining its pristine and water quality is not just important for Palm Beach County, but for the entire state of Florida. Um, there are conservation lands that are in between the wildlife refuge and the ag reserve to provide that additional buffer and what we've been seeing with this request for additional density and the the justification for workforce housing which we understand there's there's a housing crisis but there's a difference between workforce housing affordable housing and placing those housings in the appropriate areas and it is our opinion that the ag reserve was not meant to be a high density area. Um, for example, there is a proposal that is gonna be in front of the commission later on this month that would ask for preserve lands in the agriculture reserve to be removed and for a large development to be placed on that land that would abut the conservation land that is buffered, buffering the reserve right now. Um, so it's it's a dire situation and what we need to do as citizens and to speak out to the commission is to to say there needs to be a line drawn in the sand. And what's happening with the ag reserve is we're, we're seeing a death by a thousand cuts. There are developers that are asking for um, amendments and uh, tiny little parcels to be changed for the benefit of, of the overall good is their argument. But what we're seeing is that's creating this sounding call to developers to say, well, if, if they're getting it additional density, we can request that too. And that's our major concern for the environmental benefits of the Ag Reserve to be lost, the sustainable food source to be dwindling, and uh, 
just really looking at what the intent of the agricultural reserve is with the comprehensive plan and sticking to that original intent. Got it. Vice Mayor Weiss, I want to um, ask you, and, and it's something that Heidi just touched on a little bit, is that as more development happens further out west in in, in the ag reserve, um, that you know, there's one concern from residents is that because there is limited services, limited shopping places, limited nightlife, whatnot, um, that this is going to put actually additional stress on. Um, the infrastructure that does exist on the roads that a lot of people are going to be making really long commutes east and west and that it's just not set up for that. You know, you can't have all those cars on on Atlantic um, it, from that kind of planning perspective. I'm, I'm curious your your thoughts on it. I mean, that's exactly uh, the thought process that went into, I think, for us making this decision, which was the realization that people were crisscrossing the county. Um, to come to work in the Ag Reserve. And there was not there was no, no affordable housing. There's no multifamily housing. All that's available out there now are multi-million dollar homes, single family homes that are beyond reach for many of the folks in our workforce, most people for that matter. And that we needed to provide, and it, as I said earlier, it was always contemplated that this type of housing was going to exist there, that there, the planners who put the plan together realized if you're going to have people living somewhere, you're going to have businesses operating, you needed a place, you needed different types of places for people to live. And so, you know, by having housing that's affordable, uh, it right in uh, near the uh, um, employment centers, um, that is, in fact, going to help reduce the amount of traffic um, so people aren't having to come 40 minutes away from all over the county uh, to work out in the Ag Reserve. Got it. And Kara, I want to uh, ask you uh, kind of a zoomed out big picture question. But one of the issues that's facing farmers all across Florida and South Florida as well is that a lot of them are looking to potentially sell their land to developers in part because they say that they've been just hammered by free trade agreements with Mexico and that since Florida and Mexico share the same growing season, they they're forced to compete with cheaper produce from Mexico, which makes it impossible to make money. And at the same time, the value of land in South Florida has skyrocketed. Um, so those are two very real pressures. And, and Kara, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, that it paints a, complex picture for how to address these problems. I'm just curious your thoughts on it because it is a real, you know, they're caught, they're caught on two sides of this thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we need to understand that agriculture, agricultural lands have so many benefits. Of course, when actively in production, we need those resources to feed our community. Um, but when agricultural owners are saying they want to sell, um, we're losing so many valuable resources in terms of, you know, aquifer recharge. Um, many people may not even realize that here in South Florida, we get our clean water from the aquifers below us. We need open space like farmland, like preservation land to recharge our aquifers and secure our water supply. And so at MPCA, we are definitely looking at ways that we can partner with um, the agricultural community to ensure that we keep open space 
could that land instead be used for a restoration project um, preserved under some umbrella of preservation by either county, state, or federal management? Um, we, we can't afford to lose what little remaining preservation area we have in South Florida, and we are losing it very quickly. Vice Mayor Weiss, Heidi, and Kara, I want to thank you, all three of you, very much for coming on. It was a really, really informative and great conversation. Thank you so much for having us. Thank Thank you, you, Dan. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, a controversial City of Miami plan to move homeless residents to a camp on Virginia Key. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The City of Miami Commission voted three to two last Thursday to move forward with a pilot project that could move residents experiencing homelessness to an encampment on Virginia Key. There are currently no residents living on Virginia Key, but it is the home of the historic Black Beach and recreation activities for cyclists. And the plan has been met with nearly across the board opposition. And I want to invite our audience to join this conversation. What are your thoughts on the plan to move homeless residents to Virginia Key? You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. Joining us now to talk about it is David Peary, the executive director and founder of the Miami Coalition to Advance Racial Equity. And he's also the chair of the Camillus Health Concern Consumer Advisory Board. And also joining us is Ali Bianco. She's a WLRN intern and a reporter who's been covering these developments for WLRN. David and Ali, welcome. Thanks so much Thank for you, having Danny. me. So Ali, let's start with you. What exactly was it that got voted on last week that set this in motion? Yeah, so last week, um, Miami City Miami commissioners met for one of their meetings and This discussion item was on the agenda to propose an encampment, a series of tiny homes, um, to help people with what the director of the Department of Health Services of Miami, William Poro, called people with uh, chronic homelessness. So it was really supposed to be a discussion item. There was no vote scheduled. Um, But by the end of the discussion, Commissioners had taken a vote, essentially, on whether or not to pilot the program on the northern tip of Virginia Key. So next to the sewage water treatment plant, um, some biking trails, just really at that northern end. It's a huge field. Mm-hmm. So um, at the end of the initial discussion, the the plan had failed. Um, commissioners Joe, um, uh, Joe Carroyo and Commissioner Kristen King had both voted for it. And commission and the other commissioners had voted against it. But just a few hours later, the vote changed. Um, Commissioner Alex de la Portilla basically reversed on his vote and said, you know what, we should pilot the program, but I think that we should also explore other locations. So that's what happened last week. And what more needs to be done in order for this to actually be be set in motion? Because as I understand, it's not done done yet. There still needs to have some things happen. No, it's not. And um, we've seen opposition from other city and county leaders from it. Um, right now, the next steps for the commission would be um, an economic analysis of the location. Um, Carroyo's team said that they're going to be looking into how much it would cost. And basically, 
the sort of asterisk with De La Portilla changing his vote was saying, well, we also want to see from the city manager um, a list of other potential locations, some of which may be outside of the city of Miami, but other proposed locations that would theoretically be beneficial for this program outside of Virginia And um, let's listen now to some of the reasons that the city commissioners gave for moving forward with this project. Um, we're about to hear from Commissioner Joe Carroyo and from Commissioner Christine King from last This proposal meeting. that they've been working on for a long time, trying to see what they could find, because that's, we see it clearly. Nobody wants this uh, in their neighborhood. But Virginia Key is an island of 1,000 acres, more or less. Nobody lives there. I find the Virginia Key location to be ideal. They will be provided services. They are not that far away. They're not close to residentials. And I want our listeners to know that we invited all three city commissioners who voted in favor of this item onto the show. The offices of Commissioner Joe Carroyo and Commissioner Alex Diaz de la Portilla did not respond. And Commissioner Christine King is out of town and she was unavailable to join us. David, I want to bring you into this conversation. You've been very critical of this vote by the city of Miami to place this encampment on Virginia Key. What is it about it that rubs you the wrong way here? Well, well, yes, Danny, this is uh, an incredibly misguided effort to banish the homeless uh, away from Miami, which has really been a longstanding goal uh, of at least a, a couple of the um, commissioners. Um, we were not going to solve homelessness in Miami or any other place for, for that matter by banishing the homeless or deporting them away from the places where they live. And so this is going to just be an incredible waste of time, an incredible waste of money, an incredible waste of resources that can go towards truly solving homelessness in Miami. This plan will cost millions of dollars. It, it will result in greater harm and traumatization to a population that's already been traumatized uh, by, by living on the streets. Uh, it's not just duplicative of, um, of, of efforts by the Miami-Dade Homeless Trust, which is really the expert, the lead agency in this area that, that's been tasked with solving homelessness, but it is actually very wasteful. And so the time, money, uh, even this discussion that we're having today and the resources um, that are being used to talk about this incredibly misguided effort should be used to create homes for the homeless. That is what's going to solve homelessness here in Miami. And we have a call now from Enrique in Miami. Enrique, you're on. Thanks for calling. Hey, how are you doing? Thank you for bringing up this topic. Um, I really think it's uh, a travesty to have uh, our commissioners voting the way that they're doing. It's just a complete disregard to people's will. Uh, we clearly, uh, in Miami, overwhelmingly, we're concerned about the environment. About, about the homeless situation and uh, hiding under the rug in Virginia Key is just doing the opposite of all that. What these people need is treatment, is programs that will reintroduce them to society and make them, uh, uh, you know, bringing them back to where they should be, uh, uh, productive uh, members of society, not just hiding them uh, far away so we can see them. And uh, they'll, it will be horrible for our environment. It will be horrible for our uh, extremely important historic uh, place that we have, and it's just it's just it's just crazy that we have. That's the that's the, the result of having elections 
uh, local elections in the middle of a weekday when nobody even knows that there is an election and 4,000 people show up to vote. Now we have the result. Thank you, Enrique. We're going to go to another caller, Sylvia from Miami. Uh, thanks for calling. You're on the line. Hey, uh, my biggest concern is taking a very vulnerable population, putting them out on a key that is susceptible to hurricanes, storms, and rising water. Uh, I am all for finding uh, a, a good home for the poor people who are homeless, uh, but I think uh, they've already considered the other. If you're going to take this population of the other and make them more vulnerable, it's a, a short-term solution that is not practical and only makes things worse for people who have very little. Thank you, Sylvia. So, yes, um, Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava issued a memo recently saying that the, the plan from the city of Miami raises safety, legal, environmental, and cultural concerns, and that there might be deed restrictions between the county and city for that plot of land that could prevent it from moving forward. And um, in terms of costs, she, she wrote that pro providing bathroom facilities on the site alone could cost up to $3 million dollars. Um, David, have have you been in touch with the county on this issue? Because there is uh, no, I, no, I haven't been personally in touch with the county, but I've been very much aware of their analysis. Uh, I, I took a look at the memorandum from the mayor's office and, and the like, and, and and I agree. There, um, not only with the mayor's office, with um, Commissioner Recalado's objections to to this um, really misguided plan, um, but but also. Aside from the multitude of problems and concerns raised by the mayor's office and raised by your two callers um, that, that were really putting a vulnerable group in more danger uh, on this island and in, um, in, in, in the way of, um, of, of damage and of harm uh, in case of storms, aside from this multitude of problems, we're not aware that the Miami City Commission has consulted with the people experiencing homelessness. That they, they have not um, taken this action in consultation with anybody who is actually living on the streets. And the reason why that's important is because the people who are experiencing homelessness, who, who are closest to the problem, are the experts in this area. They're the best people to talk to, to find out how to truly end homelessness in our city, rather than simply to banish people and, and cover the problem up. So people with lived experience of homelessness absolutely need to be in the room, need to be at the table when these policies are formulated. And so we would encourage the city to, to please contact us. Uh, the Consumer Advisory Board is a group of people experiencing homelessness that meet on a monthly basis. And, and also the Homeless Trust has a new lived experience advisory board, which is also a um, committee of people experiencing homelessness. So if you truly want to end homelessness, you ask a person, who is experiencing homelessness and, and you'll get your best advice. And David, also for you, the, you know, just the context of what, where this is happening in um, the city of Miami was under a federal consent decree for more than two decades that restricted how the, the city policed issues related to homelessness. And that consent decree was lifted by federal judge Federico Moreno in 2019. And one of the reasons he lifted it is because he said the city saw a 90% reduction in homelessness since 1998. And so he said the city basically has mostly solved the problem already when he lifted those restrictions. Uh, but David, how have so, things changed since that consent decree was lifted? 
So, so that's a very excellent, very important point. While that descent, while that consent decree was in place, and by the way, I was I served as a lead plaintiff in that federal court action and one of the monitors of the federal consent decree. But while it was in place, Miami did see a dramatic reduction in terms of homelessness. So our argument was, hey, why fix something that's not broken and something that's happening? But the city successfully got this consent decree overturned by saying we've learned our lesson, we're not gonna criminalize homelessness. Well, guess what happened? Less than a year later, they turned 180 degrees, they passed a series of measures that have actually criminalized homelessness. Um, as soon as they got out from underneath the consent decree, they passed this ordinance that penalized feeding the homeless called the large group feeding ordinance that, that um, chases away um, um, food providers from homeless um, areas. And then they enacted just a few months ago a ban on sleeping in public throughout the whole city. So they have um, really defied their own words in terms of um, in, in terms of criminalizing homelessness. And, and look what's happened as a result over this past um, two and a half to three years. Homelessness has ticked up; has actually gotten worse because of the city's lack of focus on providing constructive solutions and instead um, resorting to these type of facile, superficial solutions to try to sweep homelessness under the rug or to try to get rid of it visibly. And, and that's this, a huge problem. Thank you. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. We're talking about a city of Miami plan to move homeless residents to a camp on Virginia Key. And we're being joined by David Peary, the executive director of the Miami Coalition to Advance Racial Equity, and also by WLRN intern and reporter Ali Bianco. You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Ali, I want to come back to you. Um, the city says that if people take the option to, to move to this place, I will mention it's not been proposed or talked about as something mandatory, that it would be voluntary. But if, if people do choose to move to this planned encampment, what kind of services does the city plan to provide for those residents? Yeah. So like you said, it is completely voluntary. It's a program that you opt into essentially. And one of the things that they stressed is that um, the environment you can like people experiencing homelessness will be able to go in, they'll be able to go out at their at their leisure. So um, really the services that they talked about there would be case management. You know, you've got your essential services, food, restrooms, showers. There's also going to be health screenings there, um, according to the presentation at the commissioner's meeting. But um, I've heard a lot of opposition from people talking about the fact of a lack of services. And I think a lot of what I'm hearing in terms of that is services like mental health services, services like other nearby homeless shelters that could potentially also offer opportunities to people experiencing homelessness. So um, they talked a lot about services at the commissioner's meeting. It seems like a lot of these are really like the essentials. Um, and a lot of the opposition that's coming out is on kind of services that go above and beyond for what um, people experiencing homelessness also need. And we have another caller, um, Richard, calling from, from Brickell. How are you? You're on the line. Thanks for calling. Hi. Hi, thanks. I'm not from Brickell, but it relates to Brickell. Um, Thank you. And I just want to say that I think it's an appropriate location for environmental and a lot of the other reasons that were mentioned. But the irony is that the closest location for the people that are there walking or taking the bus is going to be the Brickell area. 
And I just think that the people that do live in Brickell are probably, once they get wind of it, going to fight and mobilize. Uh, but I'm not against it for that reason. I, I, I'm against it for environmental reasons. And I think also that the homeless should be integrated more to general society for all the reasons that were already mentioned. And thank also, you. just thank, yes, thank, thank, thank you for the call. And also just uh-huh. another irony, I suppose, I will, that I'll, I'll bring up is that the, the planned site for this is directly across the water, just a few hundred yards away from Fisher Island, which is the wealthiest zip code in the entire nation. Um, and they would be actually just right across the water from this. Um, we have another caller, actually, um, Esther, calling from Miami. How are you? You're on the line. Hi, how are you today? Thank you for having me on. Um, uh, I've spoken with Ali. Um, I've been one of the vocal uh, advocates. My business is on the island. And when we heard about this, we were one of the groups that shared the information with a lot of the stakeholders. Um, you know, as your speaker was saying, and I 100% agree with him, and that was our initial reaction, is that this is horrible for the homeless population. These are our most vulnerable residents, the poorest of the poor. Um, this is for the chronically shelter-resistant homeless population who needs the most help. Uh, most of the time, from what I've learned, is that these are individuals that have dual diagnosis, meaning both substance and mental health. And to say that you're going to provide mobile services is insufficient. Uh, that's probably the costliest and least effective for individuals in crisis. These are folks that, if they decide to go into the program, uh, would be going through withdrawal for drug addiction, possibly. Um, or even alcohol addiction, and that requires a different level of care than what a mobile facility can provide. There's no sewage service back there. It would have to be brought in. Uh, When the Parks Department was looking at spending a couple of million dollars to put in bathrooms at the beach, uh, that was one of the costs that was uh, analyzed, and it requires a two-mile sewage line connection. So we're talking about some significant infrastructure increases. Right. Um, Thank thank, thank you, Esther. But again, it's... No, thank you. And it's, it's spending the most to provide the least. And we have to do better by our homeless population. But we also have to protect our city park. This is a city park. Right. This isn't a thousand acre area that's just open. And thank thank you. Thank park. you, Esther. We're going to have to to leave it there. Um, David, one last question before we go on a break is that, um, you know, all of this is happening in the context of rising rents, rising costs of living. That's driving more and more people to the brink of homelessness. Um, the, South, the, the Sun Sentinel just this week had a, a piece saying, you know, places that receive calls from people experiencing homelessness or on the brink of homelessness that need services are calling for help like never before. Um, where does it all lead to here? And, and absolutely. And that's the reason why homelessness is actually ticking up here in Miami. It was on a downward trend up until um, the uh, um, city commission authorized the uh, uh, city attorney's office to, to terminate the Pottinger agreement. Now it's on the rise again. Miami is the most unaffordable housing market in the nation. So it is no surprise why more people are becoming homeless uh, w- w- within Miami-Dade. Um, and, the, and the homeless population is really the dumping ground for the failure of our institutions. And, and so you see the failure of, of our affordable housing um, system um, is is dumping people into the homelessness arena, as well as the failures of our healthcare system and, and the like. So Got we it. would urge they, um, the city to focus on the solutions rather than trying to hide the problem. Got it. Thank you. We're going to leave it there. Um, David and Ali, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, more news from the Dolphins, the Miami Dolphins. What lies in future for this franchise? I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The Miami Dolphins are in the hot seat again with the NFL stripping the team of two draft picks and slamming owner Stephen Ross with a $1.5 million fine and suspending him until October 17th, well into the coming NFL season. According to a press release by the NFL, the team did the, the NFL did not find any evidence to support former coach Brian Flores' claims that the owner wanted him to intentionally tank games. They did, however, find that the team had impermissible communication with Tom Brady between 2019 and 2020 when he was with the Patriots and in 2021 when he was with the the, the Tampa Bay. Dolphins fans, is this event the last straw? What's your take on this news? And what do you think about the future of the of the team? You can call us at, at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. Joining us now to talk about this is Dante Colinelli. He's a writer and podcaster with the podcast Dolphin Talks. Dante, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So let's just start off. When you saw the news happen this week, what was your initial reaction when you heard it as a, as a Dolphins fan? Honestly, it was just, it was shock. Uh, you know, we kind of knew that the investigation was wrapping up and that it was happening and why it was happening. Um, but the real shock was, you know, I, I think there there's a perception in the NFL, right? Like teams are always trying to get an edge to win, right? So it's not necessarily surprising a team got caught for tampering. It's that the Dolphins got caught. They got caught multiple times. They have the who, what, when, where, why. <laughs> and then the punishment was incredibly stiff, right? So not only did the Dolphins cheat, um, but I mean, this was just a comprehensive investigation and some of the language that, you know, you were referring to in the press release, you know, I think Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner called it the most egregious case of tampering he's ever seen. Um, so that, that was what was surprising about it. Not that a team in the NFL was trying to get an edge on their opponents. It was how badly they got caught and then how badly they got punished. And so, you know, since this really bombshell Drop. There's been calls for owner Stephen Ross to resign because of all of this. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And what are the prospects of something like that actually happening? I'd say they're pretty low. And what what is really funny about that is that the other person named in this report is Mr. Beal, uh, who is essentially the owner in waiting. Uh, he did not get as stiff of a fine and he did not get as stiff of a suspension, but um, you know, he has the right to become the next owner and buy the team whenever Stephen Ross, you know, uh, it can no longer fill that capacity. So and they're both I think it's it. incredibly unlikely. Exactly. So not only are they both implicated, I don't think Ross gets removed. And even if he does, the next guy up is also involved in this scandal. So um, unless you're, you know, completely cleaning house in Miami, which will not happen. Um, you're not getting away from this anytime soon. And so the, the former Dolphins coach, Brian Flores, a couple months ago made waves after he was fired and he filed a lawsuit saying that the front office wanted him to intentionally lose games in the 2019 season 
because that would mean better draft picks for the for the following season because that's just how it works. Um, how do these new revelations cross over, if at all, with those accusations? Yeah, it's really interesting. So it honestly, I, again, I'm not a lawyer, but just reading the documents that we have, it seems like the NFL confirmed that the conversation that Brian Flores mentioned in his um, class action against the NFL and three of its teams um, happened, right? So there, there is a, an establishment that that conversation about tanking happened. Now, the NFL and Stephen Ross are saying, oh, he was just kidding. And Brian Flores no, is saying, no, I felt legitimate pressure to tank. Um, obviously, I don't know how that works in the court of law, but that's kind of what we get here is that there is, you know, Stephen Ross was really like, oh, nothing like that really ever happened. Well, this investigation proves that it did happen. So even though the NFL said the Dolphins, you know, there's no evidence that the Dolphins tanked, right? But, but you know, Brian Flores said, well, in that situation, that context that I was in, I felt like I, I was being pressured to tank. So I think probably the only people that really know are the ones in that room uh, at the time of this conversation. But I, I don't think it's a good sign for the Dolphins that, you know, Brian Flores and his lawyers are going to be able to go to court and say, no, 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 we have proof that this conversation happened. You know, so I, I again, I'm not a lawyer, but I can't imagine that's a good look for Miami. Right. It is. It is somewhat of a verification of a of, of at least some of these allegations you know there's other things to be considered um so the you know the dolphins have been kind of a struggling franchise for for a while now we haven't won a playoff game in like 15 seasons by my count um and then now as part of the punishment because of of this cheating the dolphins will be forced to forfeit their first round pick in the 2023 draft and a third round pick in the 2024 draft (laughs) How does how does losing those two picks, which are you know in any given year so important for the direction of the team, how, how does that impact any future momentum that the the team might be hoping for? Yeah, I mean it's it's certainly uh, not great. I, I think it's important to remember that the team still has a first round pick next year. They have San Francisco's pick, which they acquired in a trade a couple years ago, so they're not like completely beat on next year's first round which is which is definitely good but i think um you know getting into the football nuts and bolts of this story you know this kind of prevents them if Tua Tungavailoa is not the quarterback that they expect him to be this year that kind of prevents them from trading for a star quarterback or moving up in the draft to select one of the best young passers um so while it doesn't cripple the team's future um, it does kind of remove flexibility and it, it removes a flexibility that they had built in for themselves. They got this pick um, when the, a couple drafts ago to let a team come up, right? So it was, okay, we're going to have this pick and we're going to have that flexibility and that's going to be a huge advantage for us in two years. And now they don't have that. So it's not a, you know, it's a really strong punishment, but it's not the end of the world because they have that other pick, but it does limit them. It does limit them in their options. I imagine that general manager Chris Greer was sitting in his office shaking his head and now he has to, you know, go back to the drawing board and rework, you know, his plan, right? Because he was expecting to have that extra asset and that's a very valuable asset to lose. And, you know, in terms of fandom and morale in the fandom, um, how, how, has, how has this week's news impacted morale? Has it? 
You know, I, I don't think that it has um, as much as I thought it was going to when it dropped. Uh, because that when because it dropped, we were expecting my initial, it? I, it was, I think it was part of like expecting it. And then also, I just think that there was a lot of positive momentum for the team right now. Um, a lot of people are really taking to new head coach Mike McDaniel and you know, everyone was talking about how it felt different going to practice, right? This was like, uh, literally like as practice was happening, right. Um, this dropped, like the, the, the team reporter who does an excellent job was like literally live tweeting practice and just ignoring the fact that the team just got <laughs> punished from the NFL it was a very weird moment, but it seems like the, the fan base is still very optimistic because they think the team's still going to be good this year. And that's kind of what they're hanging their hat on. They're like, all right, you know what? The owner got suspended. We lost the first round pick. We don't care. We're going to make the playoffs this year. We're going to end that streak that you talked about earlier. That seems to be the morale of the fan base. So I, it's not as bad as I thought it would be, especially when it first dropped. Cause I was like, I mean, they just, they can't seem to stay out of the news for the wrong reasons, but it does seem like things are still okay because fans feel like this team's going to be good now if they start losing games and they don't play well i think things will you know tumble pretty quickly but you could say that about any nfl season really right well we did have a, a winning season last year nine to eight um yeah but two, you know two in a row and miss the playoffs right but uh quickly because we only got a, a a little bit of time but um you know you were we were just talking about the the prospects for this coming season you know they're in training now like what's your take how do we look I think it's a good team. They got a lot better. Like you said, right? Winning season last year, nine and eight. They missed the playoffs by one game. So they're close. They're right there. Um, and they made a lot of really big improvements. So I, I think they've got a really good shot to be a playoff team this year. Uh, I think they can, you know, I don't know if they're going to pass Buffalo, who's won the division the past couple of years, but I think they can be a wild card team and have an opportunity to win a playoff game for the first time in geez, at least 20 years. So um, it is, I, they're a good team. And I think that's going to be the saving grace for the morale of this fan base is, is seeing the team win despite what is going on with Steven Ross and the NFL. So. Got it. Thank you. Dante Colinelli, writer, podcaster with Dolphin Talks. Dante, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Twe. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Our interim manager, managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is a senior editor of news. Christine DiMatte is the newscast editor. Mateo Sanchez is the digital editor. The director of radio operations and the, the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mares. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Danny Rivero. Thanks for calling and listening. The South Florida Roundup is made possible by Willie the B-Man, Bee Removal Specialist. WLRN Public Media.